0: Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. All right. And we are talking rom com territory, but it's boy rom com. It's very different. <laughs>
1: well, still deeply heteronormative. Boy <laughs> <No>. rom com. <laughs> right.
0: So today we are talking about
1: the stand in.
0: Yes, Steve Bloom's *The Stand-in* and the accompanying Netflix film *The Perfect Date* from 2019, which is co-written by Steve Bloom and Randall Green, and directed by Chris Nelson.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have some thoughts, and we will get them (laughs) now. But before we do, did you do any homework this week, Joe?
0: So we're recording this so far in advance now that I'm finding it occasionally difficult to come up with new pieces <laughs> of homework. It's but true. I will say that at the time of this recording and in the interim before it drops, there will have been a new teen film on Netflix <gasps> and it stars your favorite boy, KJ Appa from Riverdale. Oh my god, really? <sighs> mm-hmm. So I double-checked to make sure that this is not a future episode, and it is, in fact, an original, original property, not based on a book.
1: Oh, that's even better news. Go on, then.
0: So it is a film called The Last Summer. As you might expect, it's a film that takes place over a single summer between high school and college, and it's about a foursome of friends who struggle to figure out what they're going to do. Of course, I think they're each dating... There's like two boys and two girls, and then the boys are either dating the girls or interested in dating the girls. And oh, then
1: I thought you were going to say dating each other. No. No, huh?
0: Still firmly in heteronormative territory.
1: <laughs> Yay, Netflix adaptations. Go on. <laughs>
0: yeah. I, I mean, I really don't have much more than that. I checked out <laughs> the trailer. It looks, you know, like your usual mix of somebody came up with a playlist and then they shot a movie to it <laughs> starring hot young people.
1: <laughs> so it will do huge.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it'll do fine. I mean, it's got KJ Appa and it's got Tyler Posey from the Teen Wolf oh, right. shows. Mm-hmm. He's like the interloper. So he's dating the girl that KJ Appa's character wants to date. Uh-huh. I don't know. I didn't recognize the girls. It's Maya Mitchell and Halston Sage. Mm, And the other boy is Jacob Latimer. I don't know. I was like, it's attractive people over the summer. The movie.
1: (laughs) We'll talk about this some today. I I suspect with the stand-in that... I think Netflix is running into trouble with these YA films, both the originals and the adaptations. They just seem to tread the same ground over and over again. And I totally get that it's selling right now, but Mm -hmm. I wonder for how long. And it also, I don't know. I mean, the whole point of Netflix was supposed to be HBO-esque, right? Like we can do whatever we want because we run on subscription fees, not like ratings and ads. And I'm still obviously very bitter about the cancellation of one day at a time. But I just feel like if that's the case, why are they making so much predictable schlock and canceling the really good, interesting stuff?
0: Yeah. Well, I think because they're saying one thing or paying lip service to one idea, and then the bottom line bean counters are looking at the numbers, which they never reveal. No. They've literally in however many years Netflix has been available, I've seen them release one number. That was for Bird Box Mm -hmm. in December, where they just had this astronomically large, like 60 million or 90 million viewers had watched this movie. And that was the only time in the entire history of the company I've ever seen them release numbers. So they can literally even just say, this show is performing really well, or this series is not, and now it's been canceled. We have no idea. We're basically at their whims, like puppets. But I think at the end of the day, yeah, like they're going for the more predictable generic schlock. And I say this loving a lot of predictable generic schlock myself. Sure, we're fans. We are. I mean, half the stuff we do on this podcast <laughs> is like all about threading tropes and finding yes. new ways of doing the same old thing. Absolutely. But Netflix, like they've got a mold, particularly for these teen films, where they just interchange generic looking white actors and then occasionally throw in like oh okay we're gonna put in you know something a little bit different but the plots are always the same they're beyond formulaic they are cookie cutter Yep. And I say this having just written a Hallmark Christmas article with you, Brenna. <laughs> like we know formulaic at this point. <laughs> it's,
1: it's true. We know our way around a formula. And we we work really hard to give credit when credit is due within these these structures. I think One Day at a Time is a good example of this, right? They took the staid and schlocky sitcom form and they made it amazing, mm-hmm. right? They made it do something really interesting with the content that made the form feel fresh for the first time in a billion years. Yeah. so they have the capacity to find the people to do that work. I guess the other thing that that is bothersome here around this issue of ratings and not having sort of real information, we're seeing that in all kinds of digital distribution networks, right? Like it's the same thing with comics and comicsology, comicsology is an Amazon company, so it does not release its sales figures, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Audible, we get told what's a bestseller, but we don't really know what that means.
0: Yeah, like how are we defining that?
1: And so more and more as viewers and consumers, but also importantly as like critics and scholars, we can't actually get at that information to talk about what's going on with this stuff culturally. Mm -hmm. And I think... That's bad. <laughs> I think that's like yep. long term bad in terms of cultural criticism, cultural studies, all that stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Particularly when we're we're literally purchasing content from yes. these different organizations, who are then also telling us what their definition of a success or a failure is.
1: Yes, exactly. It's like,
0: well, so we're just meant to trust you, like you're going to do things out of the goodness of your heart when you're telling us things.
1: Well, I mean, you're right. They they tread this this line like. On the one hand, trust us, we're Netflix, we can do whatever we want because subscription model. And then on the other hand, uh, you better watch our stuff or we're going to cancel it, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, you can't be both of those things. And also keep all the ratings secret. I mean, I say you can't, they do. That's exactly Mm -hmm. what they're doing. So (laughs) shockingly, I don't think they're taking a lot of guidance from like us. So
0: (laughs) not so far, but... I do agree with you. I'm very interested to see if there is going to be a time when the bubble bursts. Mm -hmm. At some point, enough of these generic-looking last summers and the perfect dates will just not click with audiences. And then I think suddenly we'll just be like, hey, I guess they're not releasing any more of these. (laughs) Yeah, I
1: think think so. It's interesting to see what this podcast has done to my Netflix algorithm, though, Joe, because... (laughs) I um, I turned on Netflix to watch Perfect Date. We have a living room account for the stuff we watch like together and then we have our own individual accounts. Right. So like... Our living room one is like, make sure you finish watching Queer Eye, that's pretty great. Hey, how about this documentary series about Formula One drivers? Have -hmm. you considered watching this new prestige comedy? And then I log into my user and it's like, "Uh, perfect date is right here, Brenna. We know that's what you came for. So just click on it.
0: It was literally (laughs) at the top of my queue. And I mean, partially we're recording this. I think just a few weeks after it's come out. So they're going to be pushing it hard regardless. But yeah, we are now firmly the target market for all of these shows.
1: (laughs) So we hear about them first at least.
0: There we go. So that was a a long diatribe, (laughs) but uh, do you have anything for homework that you want to share?
1: I do, and it's not even a book. I'm just, I'm all about the excitement right now. No, I started watching, finally, a series that I've been meaning to get to, Mm -hmm. um, and it is a firmly YANA series uh, called Good Trouble. Have you heard about Good Trouble, Joe?
0: Oh gosh, it's ringing a bell, and yet I'm drawing a complete blank.
1: I'm not surprised, because (laughs) it's a spinoff of The Fosters which was on Freeform uh, okay. for like six seasons, I think.
0: That would be why, yeah. So I would have heard it, but have no <laughs> no association <laughs> with it at all.
1: So The Fosters is about a family of multi-ethnic foster kids who live together with their lesbian foster moms. My husband said the writers of the show were sociopaths because something horrible happens to someone like every 15 minutes or so.
0: Yeah, so it was a teen show.
1: It was a teen show, but I mean, it was a family show, I think, probably more like family with a teen skew. Mm -hmm. So we are, I don't know, five or so years out from the finale. I mean, in real time, this show started like six months after the finale of The Fosters. (laughs) But we fast forwarded in time about five years and uh, Good Trouble follows Callie and Mariana, who were sort of the two female leads on The Fosters. their sisters they are sisters sorry as they jump into the adult phase of their lives they have both graduated from university callie is going to be a lawyer so she's working as a law clerk for a very conservative judge and marianna is a software engineer who's just gotten a job at a tech startup and they're living in la together in this weird communal housing project thing that's sort of my idea of hell. But anyway, (laughs) I started it last night. And the reason I wanted to mention it today is because A, it's squarely young adult, new adult. But what I found really interesting was the way the show is aggressively signaling its audience shift from family with a teen focus to young adult, new adult. Sort of that transition is made really explicit in the very first episode where like I think maybe even before the opening credits roll, you've got like like a sex sex. scene. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, graphic sex and then drugs, heavy drinking. Like it's really aggressively announcing itself as for a slightly older audience, but it's really jarring because. If you finished watching The Fosters sort of in real time, that was only about six months to a year before the premiere of this show. Mm -hmm. And they're all still high school students (laughs) in that context. So on the one hand, what they've done is they have just aged up the show appropriately to the actual ages of the actors. But I find a really weird, jarring experience. And I can't think of another example of it since the finale of Dawson's Creek, where they aged everybody up all of a sudden at the end. But that worked in the context of the sort of arc of that show. Whereas this, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if it works. Anyway, I'm only two episodes in. What I loved about The Fosters was the ability to do kind of like issue-oriented drama that was still really funny and heartfelt. Mm -hmm. Because it was, I mean, family-forward programming. This... Is a lot more cynical and might be too cynical for me. Callie gets this job with a Bush-era appointee judge because she thinks that she can change him. And the first break she gets as his clerk is that he names her to clerk on this very high-profile police shooting case because he wants her to write the liberal opinion that he's going to like slash and Destroy. burn. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, and then Mariana has got this dream job at this tech company she's the only woman in her pod and they basically put her on data entry and no one will include her in any of the sort of team building exercises and she's kind of in in hell and it's like oh oh it's very different show Hmm. (laughs) might be too much for me but we'll see i'm two episodes in fair enough so that's good trouble if you have watched i know all of season one is out now and i'm just catching up to it but if you have watched it let me know if i should stick with it because i'm i'm on the fence
0: All right, so we -hmm. we need some responses from listeners whether or not Good Trouble is worth sticking around for. We
1: do. Hashtag HKHSpod on the Twitters. All right. Mm
0: -hmm. Ah, With that, we'll now move into our main event, which is the stand-in, the book, and then the perfect date, which is the adaptation, which elected to go with a different name for reasons unknown. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I mean neither one is particularly inspiring or memorable. So
0: kinda like both of these texts. <laughs> Boom bada bing.
1: It's very true. Okay, so the stand in is written by Steve Bloom. It came out in twenty sixteen, to frankly, not a great deal of fanfare or excitement. Anything? Yeah, I mean I hadn't heard of it and I keep up with all the major publishers and then I realize it's not from a major publisher, so it's a it's a more small press. YA offering. Okay. So this is about Brooks Radigan. Yeah, we just...
0: (laughs) I I just need to get it out now. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that name.
1: It's a terrible name.
0: Brooks Radigan. I think when we first started this, I may have texted you and been like, is this like some kind of old timey, like, (laughs) I'm going to pick up a magical Negro and go down the river kind of name? Because what... In the F is Brooks Radigan.
1: <laughs> I know. Speaking of which, they added a magical negro to the film version that was not. I in noticed the book. that too. I was like, oh no, you didn't.
0: Oh I know. Uh, I know. Uh, it, okay.
1: <laughs> as we're gonna talk about the book has some pretty problematic aspects. The film Manages to like fix a lot of the problematic elements while also becoming even blander, but then it adds in that scene. And I was like, what the? Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So Brooks Radigan is a, he's in his senior year of high school. He's a teenager living in New Jersey. He is obsessed with getting into Columbia University. It is literally all he cares about. He is focused on improving his SAT scores. He makes up a whole bunch of extracurriculars to try to pad out his resume. He wants Columbia more than anything. His home life is pretty rough. He's the son of a letter carrier, mailman, and his dad is pretty checked out. He's kind of a burnout stoner. He hangs out with, you know, people who maybe are going to buy his comic book collection and or sell him pot. He doesn't have a lot of ambition, or so we think at the beginning of the novel. And he's kind of distant from Brooks. The flip side of that is that because Brooks is so focused on getting into Columbia, he doesn't really care about anything that isn't serving that. And his father is not serving that. Definitely. All we know about his mother is that she took off when he was little. And that's that. We actually mm-hmm. don't know anything else about her. And it's never really pursued in the novel.
0: Which I kind of appreciated a little bit. Was I like, liked it yep, not being She's yet. not here and... That's what it is.
1: Yeah, I liked it not being a moment of reckoning or anything, and I didn't realize how much I did like it until it got shoehorned into the movie version. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So Brooks is obsessed with getting enough money together to be able to make Columbia a possibility. So he's basically got two focuses, like keep his grades up, keep his SAT scores high, get the money to get into Columbia. Everything is focused on this one goal. He works at a subway sort of knockoff shop where he makes sandwiches with his friend Murph. Murph is a lot more like Brooks's dad than Brooks himself. He's planning to go to the local community college. He doesn't have huge aspirations to get out of the small town where they live and he's kind of happy in his own skin.
0: Yeah he's fine with it.
1: He's totally fine with it. What happens one day when Brooks is at work is he overhears a guy who had another absolutely ridiculous name. I actually wrote it down so I would remember to mention it. Uh Burdette. He overhears (laughs) this guy named Burdette (laughs) talking about how he's going to have to take his cousin to homecoming because she's been stood up and he offers to go in his place. What he doesn't realize is that the cousin's family is like crazy wealthy and when he gets there to be sort of her stand-in date, not only does he get to eat at an incredibly fancy restaurant on the dad's dime. Not only does he get to drive the dad's super crazy fast Lamborghini, but at the end of the night, the dad is so happy with how happy Brooks has made his darling little girl that he pays him a massive like $300 tip for Mm -hmm. taking his daughter out. And suddenly a new plan is born. Brooks is going to quit his job and take rich socialite girls out on important dates Mm -hmm. to earn
0: money. But only rich socialite girls.
1: Only rich socialite girls. And What's important in the book that gets changed for the film is that it's only these like important life altering spring formal prom winter formal. Like it's these really important events and he's really careful to like only do it for one girl at each of these like private schools so that it seems real. And to Brooks's credit, he actually works to make it a nice night out for the young women involved. He's really kind and sweet and he comes to enjoy both spending time with these young women and also the money (laughs) that he's making in the process.
0: It's a bit win-win.
1: It's a bit win-win. All of this basically pivots on the fact that he ends up in kind of a bit of a triangle between these two young women, Celia and Shelby. Celia is a girl he is paid to take out on a date who is quirky and weird and doesn't really want to be a standard kind of cookie cutter girl who fits the mold of all these other dates and gives him a lot of resistance Mm -hmm. but they actually form kind of an unlikely friendship together and there's a girl at celia's school named shelby who is apparently the absolute perfect woman
0: because she's hot and rich
1: because she's hot and rich and so brooks wants to be with her So he basically reinvents his entire identity, pretends to not be from New Jersey, pretends to have money he doesn't have to try to win Shelby. And of course, what he really learns is that the girl he was supposed to be with all along is Celia. And at the end of the book, he also gets into Columbia and they don't have the money for him to go. But that's okay because they find it. His father sells his comic book collection to fund his first three semesters of Mm -hmm. Columbia not a real clear what's going to happen after that. Um Don't figure it out, Brenna. Oh, and the important thing is that even though he's been waiting to get into Columbia, the whole time he has had this free ride scholarship to Rutgers, which he's basically like, screw you, Rutgers, you suck. Mm-hmm. I'm going to Columbia no matter what, even if I have to bankrupt my father to do it. And the happy ending of the book is that that's what he does.
0: Correct. Yes. <laughs> Why do you sound so incredulous about this? <laughs>
1: It's such a weird little book, Joe, because on the one hand, it's actually saying some really interesting things about class and striving and opportunity and income inequality in America. Like yep, yep. when Brooks says like, it's worth bankrupting my father to go to Columbia, like he's not actually wrong, right?
0: No, I mean, I think <sighs> any young person worth their salt who's even remotely considering What does the future hold for me? You are honestly thinking about the post-secondary education, like whatever I elect for that to be. That's ultimately really important. And I think the book has a bit of emotional honesty in acknowledging Mm -hmm. that even if trying to wrap it up in a fantasy happy ending Well. Making 95% of the book about how effing challenging it is to make money and dealing with the struggle and that kind of stuff. It feels facetious as an ending, but the book is actually saying some interesting things before that.
1: So one of the things I didn't mention is that the guy who Brooks thinks of as just his stoner burnout father, he went to Harvard and he was at one time in his life a really promising novelist. And he has since lost all of that, right? And so his father's position is like an Ivy League school doesn't get you anything because Mm -hmm. look at me. But the flip side is like his father has given up, right? And so there's something interesting in the book going on around class and opportunity and who has access to what. And you're right. I think it's actually really, really honest that the book says the name on your education does matter and it's worth Brooks basically forfeiting his father's future for his own. And it's a weird dynamic, I think. It's something that I have a hard time always wrapping my head around because here, and by that I mean in Canada, we have an almost entirely public education system at the post-secondary level. And basically a BA is a BA is a BA. I mean, you might argue differently if you went to like Queens or U of T or McGill, but like for the most part... Undergraduate education in Canada is pretty much the same across the board.
0: Yes. We touched on this briefly in the episode on Before I Fall, because the school there is masquerading. Well, in real life, it's actually, it's a private institution. And it's, I think, the only one of its kind in Canada.
1: It was definitely the first non-Christian private university in Canada.
0: Yeah. But you're right that a lot of the schools in Canada are kind of considered on par there are no ivy league equivalent although of course if you're taking a certain program at a certain institution it sure. has a higher you know cashed value but it's nothing compared to the struggle that we tend to see when we're looking at american techs the harvards the columbias the yales and those kinds of things it's like those are dreams for a lot of people and the stats that he quotes in the book are yeah. shocking. They right? are
1: shocking in terms of, like, the acceptance rate and also shocking the fact that, like, Brooks is smart and he's a good student. Like, he plays the game appropriately, and he's awarded a scholarship. He's awarded $22,000 a year for Columbia when mm-hmm. he gets the offer. And I was like, when I read that, I was like, oh, wow, everything's really working yeah, out for books. Yeah, he's cover it off. And <laughs> because there's because no, there is no school you could go to in Canada with the exception maybe of Quest. I don't know what they charge. But in terms of the public universities, which is the majority of our universities, mm-hmm. like $22,000 a year would absolutely cover tuition, books, Multiple and years. residence. Yeah, yeah. Like it would definitely cover all of that and then some. And then they're like, oh, that's half of what he needs a year. I'm like, holy godfathers.
0: Yeah, this is how people end up in debt for their post-secondary education for the rest of their lives. And it's terrifying.
1: It is terrifying. And so I think the book, the cavalier way in which the rich kids talk about their opportunities and the resentment that Brooks feels, he's absolutely head over heels for Shelby Until she treats Columbia as like this throwaway who cares thing because she's a legacy kid. Mm -hmm. And that for him is like a moment of, huh, you don't actually have to work the way I have to work to access what is like a life changing credential for me. Mm -hmm. And to her, it's just like, I don't know, I guess I'm going to Columbia, whatevs,
0: right? Which is a really nice change of pace because Shelby as a character is really one-dimensional all things considered like she really is a token hot rich girl mm-hmm. and she's doing a number of things that we've seen in other texts that would just immediately code her as despicable and the wrong partner and Brooks is willing to overlook a lot of that because he's a teenage boy mm-hmm. and he has a penis that he which would we hear like a to... lot about in this book yeah, by the way which I did not care for <laughs> But he's willing to overlook a lot of her faults that would traditionally just classify her as a mean girl, you know, Mm -hmm. a bit of a rich bitch. Mm -hmm. And it's really not until she dresses down the piece that he has been striving towards so much that he really recognizes, you know what, this isn't just about a difference of personalities. This isn't just about you being a bit mean or you dressing down some of these other things. It's like you have Literally never had to experience the kind of hardship that I have had. Mm -hmm. And that was really interesting as a reader of now many YA texts to be like, wow, okay, we're going to go here. Like, we're actually going to talk about income inequality here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that is what I think the strength of this book is its willingness to talk about class and its willingness to talk about what people have access to and what they don't. And Mm -hmm. I think it is not a well-written book. No. There are unforgivable, um, like just, there is fat phobia and there is a big old dropping of the R word and there is a Mm -hmm. ton of stuff that for a book that I'm sorry came in in 2016, it's just like...
0: Yeah, it's tone deaf in a lot of ways. It honestly felt like it was maybe written a decade ago and then polished up and polished or published rather.
1: Yeah. Or the guy who wrote it is like 58. I don't know. But it's the distance between what we are seeing in the majority of contemporary YA texts, just in terms of like acceptable language, acceptable way to refer to other human beings.
0: There's no diversity to speak of at all in this Mm -mm.
1: book? No, none. And there's just no awareness that that might be desirable either. You know, Mm -hmm. like in all of Brooks's capacity to criticize the class dynamics at play at no point does he look around and be like oh and also all these people are white mm-hmm. which it felt really weird to me because Brooks is very it's set in
0: New Jersey
1: <laughs> it's set in New Jersey and Brooks is very aware of his subject position his place mm-hmm. there's a really gross gross scene where he's trying to come up with like an inn with his guidance counselor and oh, she's like gosh, yeah. do you have any like aboriginal heritage and he's like do you have a limp And it's just like, okay, this is
0: Mm -hmm. frankly appalling. Well, there's the section even where he gets high and he ends up writing a fictitious story to an admissions officer.
1: I blocked that out.
0: How he saved the life of, is it a sick child or a blind child? I
1: think he's blind. Yeah. So bad.
0: I mean, it's one of those things where he wakes up the next morning and he realizes, oh, this isn't going to fly. But he's not like, wow, I'm a genuinely terrible person (laughs) because this is disgusting.
1: No, if there's one thing Brooks doesn't do in this book, it is recognize things about himself or come to terms with things. <laughs> just, I mean, he really does have this kind of bullheaded, I'm going to get into Columbia. I mean, yes, he realizes that Celia is the girl he's supposed to be with and he becomes less superficial about Shelby. But like, the only reason he can do that is because Celia cleans up nice and he decides that she is actually hot, right? Really? Like, if she yeah. hadn't, I don't She's think- She's
0: genuinely attractive. Oh my god. Oh, well, you know, heaven forbid if she wasn't, because I guess then we'd have a completely different outcome.
1: Yeah, exactly. And on top of all of that, the book is just, it's ploddingly clunkily written. It's 360 pages for a start, which is approximately 100 pages too many.
0: hmm Especially for some of the faux conflicts that happen. Mm-hmm. Maybe at this point we can include the subplot, his conflict that happens with Murph. Oh, right, of course. Like there's an incident that happens really late Okay. It happens late-ish in the book where he realizes that he needs a personal essay that will really capture the attention. So he manages to convince Murph, his best and only friend, that he should fall into a frozen lake so that he can save him in front of a group of children and then write a personal essay about it. And that's what causes a third act conflict or falling out between the two of them. And I was like, Why are we doing this? Did that really
1: happen? Because I thought that was a fever dream I had while I was reading the book.
0: Oh no, that happened. It
1: is so weird. It is so bizarrely shoehorned in. Incidentally, they have already had a falling out and a conflict because Murph gets ditched at a club so that Brooks can chase after Shelby.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Murph gets basically... Okay, sorry. These two conflicts are patently ridiculous on opposite ends of the spectrum yes getting ditched by a friend at a club while you're wasted and they like have a chance to hook up with somebody that happens Yeah, sure i can imagine that there might be some bad blood but in the book i think it goes on for weeks that he won't talk to him you're just like no this would be like did you at least get some no okay whatever
1: and they finally repair that what happens is they finally have a conversation the problem is that brooks is too like ashamed to actually deal with the thing with murph and so Mm -hmm. it festers right
0: well and boys
1: well yeah and so they finally have the conversation and then when they do have the conversation they almost immediately immediately roll into this stupid drowning thing which still i don't understand what that was supposed to achieve it makes no sense
0: not at all and then that drives the remainder of their relationship until the end of the book when they somehow manage to patch it up because Murph realizes that he's actually an entrepreneur because he has completely turned around the restaurant that Brooks used to work at with him which we've seen throughout the entire course of the book so I don't know why that suddenly manages to repair their friendship it's like oh You became a successful restaurateur and also you took a girl to prom. So I guess now we're good.
1: Now you're worth something to me. And I (laughs) I have, like, it's a very odd. It is not a well-written or well-crafted narrative. The only thing it is doing that is interesting that we don't see typically in YA is this conversation about class.
0: Mm -hmm, Which that's the part that I liked about Murph.
1: Yes. Yeah, Murph is happy in the life that he has. Murph is necessary because... Without Murph, you would think that the only other option from Brooks's striving is Brooks's dad's complete burnout, loser life. And what Murph gives us is an example of a middle ground, a different way of thinking about your future, a different way of thinking about your life, a different way of thinking about community. Like he loves the small town that they're from. He doesn't want to leave the small town that they're from. Mm-hmm. So Murph is really necessary. Yeah. Basically, this is the only interesting thing that is happening in the book And the movie just erases it completely.
0: Yeah. So why don't we pivot now and then we can introduce the film, The Perfect Date. Sounds like a plan. I've always wanted to date the most popular girl, drive the nicest car, and go to the fanciest school.
1: Yale is the goal, correct? More than anything in the world.
0: But I can't afford any of that. My uncle's paying me to escort my cousin to a semi-formal. I'll take your cousin. What? I'll take your cousin to the dance. Why? What would you get out of it? I'd get the payment you were talking about, and I get to take your car. You got a suit? You're getting paid to take a girl on a date. Did you know that Michelle Obama got paid to go on a date with Barack? And look how great that turned out. Is that true? I don't know. But it could be true. And that is my point. Uh, Good evening. Let's do this so we can stop doing this. We don't care what you say. I happen to think that you and I can have a really good time tonight. You have clearly never been to my high school. Let's go shred some hardwood. No. Yes. No, no, no. Yes. Right. Is this your job? No. should be. Troubled rich girls in need of a chaperone. It could be big business here. I figured out how to get the money I need to go to Yale. I'm offering my services as a chaperone for whatever it is that girls want. Hey! Oh my god, you didn't. Oh, but I did. Alright, so as we said off the top, this is still written by Steve Bloom. So he's adapting his own book with the help of Randall Green. So we've got two men, and then we've got another man, Chris Nelson, directing. And this is from this year. So the film stars current IT boy Noah Centineo as Brooks. And then we've got his former Austin and Ally co-star, Laura Morano, as Celia, who we've not really touched on it very much, but we can chat about her in the context of both. Mm-hmm. Murph is cast differently. So we actually introduce some diversity by having Black actor Odysseus Jordiatis. We also have Riverdale connection. Mm-hmm. Camilla Mendez as Shelby.
1: Yes, she's Veronica. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: And then I suppose we could also talk about Matt Walsh, who plays Noah Centineo's (laughs) dad in possibly the worst father-son casting I have seen in a very, very long time. Because these two look nothing alike.
1: I could not shake the feeling every time he was on screen that... And I don't even know what the word for it is because I don't believe that he is in this role performing as a low-rent Louis C.K. in that I don't think Louis C.K. can get work and thus there is no one with lower rent. But Mm -hmm. he is absolutely trying to play like this Louis C.K. type both in the way they've like groomed him and in his delivery of lines and it is so cringy.
0: It's very distracting too.
1: It's so distracting. I kept looking away. Like, I just didn't want It It was so, I found it so uncomfortable the way they decided to, well, the way they dealt with the father completely.
0: I mean, it's just the first of many, many bad decisions that this film makes.
1: And it connects into this larger class issue. Do you mind if I keep go spinning go on it. this for a second? So yep. differences between the film and the book. So in the book, they live in a really ratty two-bedroom apartment. In the film, they own a home. It's a small home, but they live in a home. Um, and it's It's not standing. even that small. It's not even that the small. The
0: minute that he walks into this living room, I was like, oh this is beautiful yeah like i would be very happy to live there And the the definition of uncleanliness or messiness is a plate with sandwich crumbs on the coffee table.
1: Because this is the thing. In the book, Brooks is always frustrated by the fact that Charlie, his dad, he like basically only eats takeout. He leaves the takeout wrappers everywhere. The sink is always full of like moldy old dishes. Charlie Mm -hmm. comes home and smokes weed and checks out of life. Like he is not engaged in the family dynamic in any way.
0: Yeah, like Brooks is raising himself.
1: Basically, yes. So if you've read that, then what you get from the film version when you first walk into this house is it's beautiful. Like it's been designed. It's squarely middle class. The walls are like teal blue and there's like stainless steel appliances. And Mm -hmm. everything is pristine except, yes, you're right, there's a plate with crumbs on it on the coffee table. And... Brooks is like, can you clean up this place? And his dad's like, oh, I'm so sorry I've let it all go. And you're like, um, what? what is happening? His father, by the way, is not a mailman in the film version. He's a, I guess, adjunct maybe professor, but he teaches. No, he must be more than that because he gets uh, scholarship benefits for his son. So he teaches at a local state school, basically. He teaches at Yukon College.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. I just thought he was a struggling writer because I was... Tuning
1: out. But. No, he teaches there because when we first meet him, he's fallen asleep on the couch marking papers. Trust me, I always notice when someone is marking a paper. <laughs> so he's fallen <laughs> asleep on the couch marking papers. We know that he has this financial benefit with his employment that Brooks will get money towards his education if he goes to Yukon College. Yes. So Class difference changes completely. He's a solidly middle-class young man. He definitely, like if he wants to go to the Ivy League, yeah, he's going to have to work for it. But he's not raising himself
0: in squalor. Mm-hmm. He's Like he's not living near destitute.
1: No, he's a perfectly comfortable young man. They work in this sub shop, he and Murph, together. And Murph is also striving to get into a good university so there's no class difference between the two of them either they're both writing application letters they're both in this mode together it's a complete flattening of the only thing that was interesting in the novel yeah and then further murph has the skills to develop an app for brooks brooks makes this app about his dating life or the stand-in role that he's going to play and it blows the whole thing wide open because anybody can book him for any date, which to me, the whole thing is discretion, right? Nobody wants you to know they're on a date with a Mm stand-in. And yet if anybody can book you for anything and your face is all over your app as like this public stand-in, isn't there like zero cover whatsoever?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the book, he's very, very careful. Like there's entire passages about him actively saying, no, I'm not going to go out with this person a second time. No, I'm going to make sure that it's in a different district or a different Mm -hmm. county over so that I'm not seen.
1: Yeah, he turns down like really well-paying dates because it's at the same school as he's been to with a date before. Discretion is like 90% of why he's successful in the
0: book. Mm -hmm. Which, if you think about it, in terms of escorting that would be a very significant thing. Whereas yep. in the film, they're really just tossing off like male prostitute and gigolo jokes. Yep. Apparently, all of these women just have money to take him on as a tennis partner or get dating advice from him or go to gallery openings. You don't even need a date for a gallery <laughs> opening.
1: Yeah, it's very odd. And then the the other thing is that because he's not... Because any woman can book it for themselves, it changes that dynamic of like the wealthy father attempting to rescue the daughter from a social situation, right? Mm -hmm. Part of what's happening in the book is that these people can use money to fix literally anything.
0: Anything. And Brooks recognizes that by bartering with them.
1: Yes. Oh, yeah. He's like,
0: I want this car. I want this much more money. You're going to pay for my tax rental. Whereas here, he's apparently making enough disposable income that he can literally go and buy a different costume for every occasion. Sure, it's at a pawn shop, but in the book he doesn't have the kind of money where he could throw that away. He's constantly talking about getting his tux or his suit dry cleaned because he's just got the one.
1: Yes, and he has to be so careful, right? Like there's one scene where he's trying to flee and a dad grabs the back of his suit and he's like, he's frozen there because he can't risk ripping the suit, right? Like the stakes are a lot higher for Brooks in the book. I'm not sure what the stakes are for Brooks in the film because he doesn't seem to need the money in nearly the same way. He talks about it's Yale in the film. He wants to go to Yale in the film, but I don't understand what the desperation is around Yale in the same way that I do in the book and Columbia.
0: And I think this is actually one of the biggest differences. We're talking about plot-driven changes, but thematically, the purpose of the film is about finding out who you are. Mm-hmm. It's not about the prestige of becoming something by attaching it to a branded post-secondary institution. So the purposes of the film are completely different, but so generic and boring. Like, who are you as a teenager? Find yourself. by
1: he doesn't even apply to Yale in the end of the film version because he accepts his father's offer to to support him through going to Yukon College, mm-hmm. and it's like, okay, on the one hand, yes, that's a really smart thing. Like there are points in the book where I'm like, Brooks, you're being stupid. Take the full ride to Rutgers. Like exactly. you're being stupid, but that. Is denying the conflict intention at the center of that novel, which is about class driving. Mm-hmm. In the film version, A, he takes his dad up on it, doesn't even apply to the Ivy League at all, like never even pursues that. Yeah. And then the other thing is that The Celia is the rich girl in the film version. So Celia in the book is delighted because she's been accepted early decision to Stanford, which means she's going to get away from her parents. And Mm -hmm. it means that she knows that she has sort of made the grade. Like it's really hard to get early decision to Stanford. She's super smart and she's super bookish and she's succeeded at this thing.
0: Yeah, because her situation in the book is not that she doesn't have the money or the brains. It's that she's actually never been accepted So for her, the prestige of getting that early decision is her being able to say, I can see my exit, but also it's a bit of a up yours to all of her classmates who have always treated her badly because they're all in the same income bracket.
1: And she has these overbearing parents that she's desperate to get away from. In the film version, Celia's like, screw education, who cares? Which is, again, a flattening of like all of the class anxieties that are in the book. Like, yeah, it's great. Celia doesn't have to care about what university she goes to. She's incredibly wealthy. Mm -hmm. Like she will be fine no matter what. And eventually she will find a path and there will be somebody to foot the bill for her. Like that's a luxury that doesn't exist for Brooks in the book. And in the film, it's this positive characteristic about her because she's like, oh, who cares about any of that stuff? Just live Mm -hmm. your life. It's like, that's not a thing.
0: (laughs) That's not even a good message to be delivering (laughs) to the potential audience who is watching this. As much as I thought that Laura Moreno was lovely and charming and she had a really great haircut, I hated the way that they treated this character because in the book there's genuine conflict between her and her parents because they are overbearing. But they're also super smart, and they want better things for her. So they're actually looking at it like, we know you're going to do well, but we Mm -hmm. want you, like it's a little bit of like, you need to figure out who you are by getting drunk, by vomiting, Mm -hmm. by going to an after-hours party. And there's some really interesting interplay because they're so hands-on, which is nicely contrasted by the way that Brooks and his father are so Mm hands-off. So that's another complementary way of separating out their respective experiences. Whereas in the film, her parents are just like, they're nothing. In the book, there's these great scenes where her mom constantly dresses her in outrageous, disgustingly (laughs) ugly gowns for all of these different formal events.
1: Because she never went to a formal event, right? Like that's the whole thing. Like her mom was smart and driven and successful, but never had a social life and never got to experience prom. And so she's Mm -hmm. totally living vicariously through Celia, who doesn't want it,
0: right? yeah. And in the film... That boils down to her mom saying, you need to put on these high-heeled shoes and her being like, I want to wear these chunky boots. Yeah. Like, that's it. Because the rest <laughs> of the... When she comes down the stairs, I was like, but she's supposed to be weird and odd and... And
1: instead she has a prom dress with, like, what? A leather jacket and some chunky boots?
0: Yeah. And okay. at one point, Brooks even says, like, you know, you're a weird girl. Like, I can tell, <laughs> I can see why you don't fit in. And I was like... <laughs> She's smoking hot. Like, who yep. did the casting for this movie? If you're yep. going to have dialogue like that and actresses like this, you're honestly telling your audience, your teenage audience, that this girl, who is obviously cool, who's mm-hmm. obviously, she would fit in fine in mm-hmm. any situation and we're meant to believe she's weird she's kooky she's odd <laughs> no she is not, not the at girl all. who hires him for help and thinks that a fat man walking a little dog even that isn't that weird no this it's screenplay not. is so dialed back they've sanded off any edge to yep. make it as palatable as possible it's so frustrating yep.
1: it is frustrating and it's ultimately dishonest right
0: yeah yeah what we
1: end up having is that the only character who really exhibits the kind of striving that we see in Brooks in the book is bizarrely Shelby in the film, right? Mm -hmm. So Shelby knows that she wants to go to, I think she actually does want to go to Columbia in the film version as well. But she's like, she has a plan for her career and for her postgrad. And it's like seen as like, wow, this girl's messed up. Look at how driven of future focused she is, right?
0: Except she doesn't even know it. (laughs)
1: Except that there's like, I don't know, it just, it really bothered me that that tension between, yes, Brooks in the book wants to live his life and he wants some freedom and he wants, but he also knows that senior year is one year and the future is forever and he only has a few shots at getting what he thinks he wants out of life, right?
0: Mm Whereas the movie is like, try to make sure that you get a girlfriend who's mm-hmm. sort of hot and then you can just deck out your sub shop with a faux prom tropical theme and you're good to go. Yeah. And also you can invite a gay that doesn't ever get named <laughs> and that's part of the joke. Haha.
1: He's credited as Tuna Melt on Seven Green because he never mm-hmm. gets a name. Nope. Because in the film version, Murph is gay. But that's another thing, right? Murph never gets to sort of stand out or excel. I mean, I guess he sort of does in that he designs the app for Brooks, but then is not involved in it thereafter. No. And the extent to which he turns the sandwich shop around in quotation marks is, yeah, he puts up like a, an inflatable palm tree and some twinkle lights and they have prom there instead.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean,
1: the only thing I was grateful for is that the book is one interminable series of proms and I didn't even go um, to my own prom. So that was a lot of proms for me.
0: Yes. <laughs> I can't help but wonder if that was one of the decisions that they made is we get a montage of Brooks's dates. And to me, that's actually, yeah, I mean, you know me, I love a good montage. You love a montage. (laughs) So that was probably the most fun aspect of the film because it was kind of interesting and exciting. And then we really don't see brooks going on any other dates no because it's so focused like it's power focused laser pointed focus on let's get him fallen in love with these two different girls and have that conflict you Mm -hmm. know like every other ya text Mm -hmm. (laughs) but the problem is is like we hire a black actor to play murph and i'm thinking okay well this character is going to get some interesting beats if they follow the template from the book No. Nope. (laughs) But you know, we did make him black and gay. you're like, okay, well, thanks for your diverse casting. And (laughs) then literally reducing this person to, well, I made you an app. And also I've fallen in love with this guy who doesn't get a name. Come on.
1: And just how many times are we going to have to say the same thing, right? Like it's so exhausting to see thoughtful, engaged casting that gets completely let down by garbage storytelling which is mm-hmm. which is what is happening yet again here
0: yeah i guess we could say all the actors kind of look like they're giving it some effort i feel a little bit bad for camilla mendes she doesn't even get a big fun role to play
1: well no because they they scale her back so much she's not even really a mean girl shelby right she's like no. she and celia are basically friends i mean Celia says that they're not, but like they're very social no with rivalry. each other. There's no rivalry. There's no There's no conflict there. And yeah, the, the sum total of Shelby's like, oh, what a bitch is that she, she knows where she wants to go to school and why.
0: Well, that and the very, very awkwardly structured moment where oh, the Brooks worst. Oh, and God. Celia break up publicly. But then he actually regurgitates things that she talked about herself that she doesn't feel comfortable with and then doesn't understand why Celia gets upset. But then he just immediately starts macking on Shelby. And all I could think of was clearly we're meant to look at the scenario as, well, Shelby's a huge B word because she's like stealing this boy moments after he just broke up with this other girl. Yep. I was like, this Shelby character doesn't deserve this hatred.
1: No, because, yeah, no, because there's absolutely no context for it. In the book, she's awful about, you know, people from New Jersey, for example, which is why Brooks thinks he can't come clean about where he's actually from. She Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't understand that things cost money. She's (laughs) constantly surprised that people have limitations on them because she experiences none. She's horrible to her parents Mm -hmm. and she's horrible to Celia. It's the only moment of growth that Brooks gets in the book is his realization that he can't be with someone like Shelby because at the core, their value systems are too different. And instead, Celia, who has never made him feel bad about who he actually is or where he's actually from, is the person for him. That's the only modicum of growth he gets. And it's gone from the film. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because Shelby doesn't have an arc, and thus he doesn't really have one either.
0: Well, yeah, and it's beyond, I mean... It's always beyond obvious, but it's especially beyond obvious in this case. The moment that he begins hanging out with Celia, they're like, yeah, they've got yep. good chemistry and they're making witty banter and all this other garbage stuff. The conventions are so clearly laid out. Yep. This film is honestly a paint by numbers, but it's so unwilling to do anything interesting. I honestly genuinely feel bad for these actors because they're not even roles. <laughs> like I don't know why Camilla Mendes took this role. You no can't i don't tell me either. that you read that and think oh well here's something interesting she was probably like mm, netflix money now i can buy that yacht
1: well it's funny because i was like i wonder if she got signed on to this like a long time ago or like there was something weird no she signed on to it in march of 2018 she like was an established girl, person
0: female lead of riverdale like you could yeah. be the celia character in a garbage trash fire like this <laughs>
1: You don't need to be the sidekick to a garbage
0: trash fire.
1: It can be your garbage trash fire.
0: Everyone should be aspiring higher. Everyone, you know, be your own R- Brooks Radigan. <laughs> Try to get into the Yale of Netflix bad YA romantic comedies.
1: I think the only other thing that I want to say about this movie slash book transition is like. One of the tropes that I think it plays too hard with, I would say, in the in the book version is this idea that Brooks is completely on his own, right? Like even his guidance counselor is basically useless in the book. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the film, literally every adult character is rooting for him. They might not be yeah. rooting for him in the right way, but they're rooting for him. And yet they didn't change the part where he feels like <laughs> he's completely on his own. And so mm-hmm. it's just one of the ways the character doesn't ring very true. And it's interesting because... I don't know. I think the the rewriting of the dad is just so weird. Like this need for the dad to be a good dad. Like he he actually says that to him. He's like, you know, I might not have been a successful writer, but I was always a great father. Yeah. And you're like, wow. First of all, people who announce that usually mm, not the case, but also (laughs) this idea that... (sighs) I don't know. It's so weird. And then the thing that they shoehorn in is this idea that like every Christmas his mom sends oh, him a Christmas man. card with a picture of her new family on it. Yes. Like, is it just that Why? they want him to be a little damaged? Like, because he's not damaged enough, so they have to like add a soupçon of darkness to it? Because it's so weird. it comes weird. to nothing. It comes to nothing. It gets mentioned over pizza. And <laughs> never again. hmm I kept expecting we'd like cut to the living room scene and there'd be like the most recent Christmas card like still on the mantle
0: Mm -hmm. that did not happen no it did not but like it's just everything in this film has been dialed back so Mm -hmm. much like the conflict between Murph and Brooks in the film is literally that Brooks doesn't spend any time with him like he cancels on a game of I thought it was online gameplay but then Murph apparently got bitten in real life by other people he was playing with it made no sense to me at all
1: i did not understand what was happening
0: at all but instead of you know saying something like i was really disappointed because i thought we were friends and we're not spending any time together they just have a many month friendship breakup because brooks cancels on him one time
1: it's very weird
0: but like that feels indicative of nearly all the (laughs) content. In it's this true. movie, where you're just like, "Oh, that's what you settled on, huh? Like this is the best you could do." Okay,
1: it's a bad and problematic book with one interesting aspect, and yes. what they made was a bland and unproblematic film with no interesting aspect
0: and no conflict and no conflict. Yeah, it's two very weird. <laughs> like I, I did not enjoy reading the book. I was so no! bored the whole time. <laughs> And then I texted you. I was like, okay, so I'm almost done this turd. And you were like, well, the film is less problematic, but also less interesting. And I was like, I don't understand. How could this be? And then I watched the movie. And that was 100% accurate. Yep. Yeah. I can't even imagine that fans of Noah Centineo or Laura Morano, like I can't even imagine them looking at this movie and being like, I was rooting for the romance because it's like, how could you, Why would how could you? you care?
1: Why would you care about any of it?
0: Yeah, it, it honestly just feels like 90 minutes that we're never going to get back. And now yeah. an extra hour of talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we so do this it is for a strong you, listeners. Not recommend for
1: Go ahead me. and skip them both, folks. It's Indeed. like it's not even background noise. The film is not even background noise.
0: No. But, <laughs> okay, so I did want to ask you one final thing. Mm-hmm. This is the first boy rom com that we've done. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not going to be mean spirited and say is this indicative of the kinds <laughs> of stories that we can expect? But like, is there something different about the way that men? Like, is there something different about the text that have men as their central characters? Because Brian and I had a conversation about this. I couldn't figure out who the target audience for mm-hmm. this film would be, because I can't imagine girls would relate to this story, unless I guess they're really starved for the romance.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because we are going to be reading another boy-driven rom-com next week. Mm-hmm. And what's different about Paper Towns by John Green, which is where we're going next week, is that there's this added component of sort of a mystery, a quest, right. a journey that becomes part of it as well. I don't know. I think that Steve Bloom is a, is a bad writer. Like, yeah. <laughs> I think that we need to read more. I'm thinking of David Levithan. I'm thinking oh, yeah. of John Green. I'm thinking of... Um, oh, names that are not coming to the top of my mind right now, but books that I have read. Sure. Convincing rom-coms with male leads. I think that this is indicative of the worst of the genre, but let's face it, there are lots of really badly penned women-centered rom-coms for teens, too. Of yeah.
0: Yeah. I just wasn't sure if there are often differences between the narratives that have a male at the center as opposed to a female.
1: I do think there's usually more of a kind of, um, like, a quest or a journey of the self with the male-led texts, in my experience. The missing component of growth is part of what makes the book so tedious and the film so unwatchable.
0: Yeah, well that and, I mean, I'm not gonna lie, I'm not a prude, but... Like the, la- the language about him having a hard-on for uh-huh. Shelby in the book and, like, uh-huh. dumping ice on it.
1: Uh-huh. It's really gross. I'm, I'm just
0: like, ew. I don't need to read this in my book for YA. I mean, I even had some trouble, I'm not going to lie, in Simon versus the Homo Sapien Agenda, Mm -hmm. because I'm just like, these are adults writing about Mm -hmm. teenage urges. But unless that's the focus, like unless your book is interested in that, part of me is kind of like, you could just keep it it. a little bit like warm and fuzzy. You don't need to talk about (laughs) raging hard-ons. I'm good.
1: I know that marketing-wise, this is an anxiety about realist YA with male leads in general.
0: Oh, Interesting
1: there is a lot of anxiety around how do you sell it because the vast majority of people buying Realist YA are teen
0: girls, so right. Who probably don't always want to know that teenage boys just want to plow them.
1: Yeah, but I think that I think that, that is a fair Sorry point. Sorry for
0: that use of language.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a fair point, and I think it's something that has been a hurdle to overcome. That said, John Green was first recommended to me by a male student who thought that I would really like it. So I definitely know that that's an audience that's out there. And we all know that the anxieties that publishing has about who buys and who's actually buying, they're not always jiving. But I think it's something we should keep thinking about. And I think we should seek out more of these kinds of stories with male leads because we haven't done that many, really. No. It's worth seeing if we can find examples that do work and, and try to figure out who that who the market is for that and why does it work better for some stories than others.
0: Hmm. Okay, interesting. I've got a homework idea that maybe we can use as our wrap-up to send the stand-in mm. and the perfect date off into hell. Yes. How about people who listen to the pod, mm. if you are reading Realist YA or if you find that you are interested in the romance side of the genre, let us know. Do you tend to yes. read female-centered protagonists or do you read males? And if so, maybe do you find a distinction or talk to us about what the appeal is.
1: Yes. You can find us on hashtag HKHSpod on the Twitters and we'll be happy to chat more about it, for sure. And we will also be happy to take ideas. If you've got more of this kind of text, maybe done better, we oh, would certainly yes. like to hear about it. Yes.
0: Please <laughs> recommend us some stronger text. That would be good. Yeah. Please. I mean, we did this because of timeliness, because I think we both thought the book would be an easy read, and then yeah, the film did. had just come out, and yep. gosh, aren't I'm... we happy that we made these decisions, <laughs> and we have not had to live with them in the bed that we have made. <laughs>
1: do you have any YA bingo?
0: Bingo! Not a good bingo. I do. Hit me. Okay, so obviously we've got a love triangle. Mm-hmm. We've got Parents Just Don't Understand, mostly from the The Liebermans.
1: The Liebermans. And the Liebermans,
0: yes. I Mm -hmm. guess we can use that for both texts. And I will finally apply a queer secondary subplot for the film.
1: Definitely for the film. Mm -hmm. I'm going to add Frenemies for the film version of Shelby and Celia. I'm going to add Rich People Problems, even if they aren't the centerpiece of the text. And... I'm actually going to leave it there. I was going to say slutty secondary characters, but I don't think that carries through into the film and I don't actually like it in the book. So I'm going to leave it with rich people, problems, and frenemies. Sounds good. Cool. All right. So uh, if you want to talk to us about realist ya for boys uh you can find us at again HKHS Pod. that's hashtag HKHS Pod on the twitters and you can find me at brenna c gray that's gray with an a joe where can they find you
0: i am at b stole my remote that's the letter b and of course if you want to send us something a little bit longer so if you've got tons of books that you think we should be checking out you can always send us an email at hkhspod at gmail.com
1: fantastic and as i already alluded to next week we are back in brenna's happy place we are revisiting john green this is our first repeat author joe am i right
0: you are right
1: yeah so we're looking at paper towns the book came out in the i guess mid 2000s and the film just a couple of years ago so we'll be taking a look at another male lead this one well, I remember it as being more successful, but I, my memory fails me so frequently on this show that I don't even want to commit to that too hard. So, It's
0: exciting. You could be proven <laughs> wrong again. Again! <laughs>
1: <laughs> and uh, until Paper Towns, I will see you on the page.
0: And I will see you on the screen.
1: Bye-bye.